The Lord works in mysterious ways. This has kind of become a common cliche in evangelical culture and evangelical life. As a matter of fact, it's become such a common and popular phrase that oftentimes people think it's a Bible verse, even though it's actually not. But people love to remind us that the Lord works in mysterious ways. Now, there is some general truth to that statement. But today, I think we're going to learn about how true it is only in an entirely different way than most people actually think. We are going to learn about the great mystery through whom God works. But that mystery is Christ Jesus himself. We're going to learn about how the New Testament concept of a mystery is not so much something that we currently don't understand. The New Testament concept of a mystery is something that was once hidden in the old dispensation. But now with the coming of Christ and the coming of the new covenant has been revealed to us. So we use the term differently today than the New Testament tends to use it. And so in a certain sense, when I say the Lord works in mysterious ways, I mean the exact opposite that it's being meant to use. When people say that, what they're trying to say is that we just don't really understand what he's doing, but we know that it's somehow up to our good. But what I'm saying is that the Lord works in mysterious ways, and that mystery is Christ. That God works through the mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ. In case you think I'm not making any sense, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. My wife has been very sick, and I woke up this morning feeling a little stuffy with a sore throat. So you all get a blessing. I think today is going to have to be a much more reserved preacher than you're normally used to. So, glory to God for that. Would you stand so we can hear the word of the Lord this morning? Our sermon text is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Most of Ephesians chapter 3 is essentially a spirit-led rabbit trail. It's a, it's a divinely inspired side note. And the reason I say that is I want you to just briefly notice, uh, read with me in verse 1 again. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Right? That's Paul. So he, he introduces himself and he says, For this reason. Now, look with me. We didn't read this. It's not part of our text this morning. But look at verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Right? You see how verse 1, For this reason. Verse 14, For this reason. Uh, what's happened here is Paul begins chapter 3, verse 1, 
with the thought that he will eventually explain in verse 14. He's going to tell them, for this reason, for everything we've already discussed, this is why I pray. But what happens is his mind is sort of interrupted by his own thought. Before he actually gets to tell them, for whatever reason it is why he's praying for them, as he introduces himself and reminds them that I'm a prisoner on your behalf, that I'm writing this letter from prison, a question pops into his mind, a thought pops into his mind, and he sort of chases that rabbit. And then in verse 14, he picks back up and says, okay, back to the point. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father in heaven. So really, most of chapter 3 is essentially a very, very important side note. It's a bit of a rabbit trail. And the rabbit trail specifically, as we read in Galatians chapter 1, is that Paul is uh, sort of assuming that the Ephesians have a certain knowledge. That now he's starting to question, do they actually know this? He's writing this letter from prison, and the reason he's in prison is because the apostles were not well liked by either the Jews or the Gentiles. And if you remember, the apostle Paul was given sort of a special role among the rest of the apostles. All of the apostles had the same authority and generally speaking the same function. But most of the apostles were primarily uh, ministering over the Jewish people. There was some overlap we see in the book of Acts, but for the most part, the apostles were the apostles to the Jews. But God called Paul to be the special light to the Gentiles. And this is why Paul did far more mission trips than the other apostles did, because he was the one specially given to the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus Christ told him, I want you to be the one who takes the gospel beyond the borders of Israel and out into the Gentile world. Paul has a special relationship with these Gentile Ephesians. He has a special commission to them. And he, he begins to wonder if they actually even know that. Right? Because that's what he says in verse 2. This is, he interrupts himself as he reminds them that he is a prisoner. He says in verse 2, well, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So really, Ephesians 3 is he's going to essentially take a side note and remind them not just of his role and his call, but he's even going to become very, he's going to summarize a lot of what was just said. But before we do that, I, as, we, as we're focusing just on verse 1 for a moment, I think there's something really, really important. Uh, why would Paul begin this way? Like, why was it important for him to remind these people that he is both a prisoner for Christ and on behalf of the Gentiles? Like, he basically says, there's two reasons I'm in prison. And one of them is Jesus' fault, and the other one is your fault. Right? Now, why would he do that? Well, it's important to remind them why he's a prisoner for Christ. This is something we tend to take for granted, but if you were to put yourself in the first century, and you don't know Paul that well, he's just kind of this really charismatic guy that came in preaching this gospel, he left, and now you've got all these other teachers coming in, and they're trying to contradict Paul. Like, who do I believe? And you know what's kind of a mark against Paul? The guy's a troublemaker. The guy's in and out of prison all the time. Uh, can you imagine if before you all hired me here, the pastoral search committee came before the congregation and said, we have a guy we're really interested, we really like, but just a heads up, the guy can't stay out of jail. <laughs> How would that bode for your confidence for me? Right? And we see throughout the New Testament that this was often used against Paul. Why would you listen to him? The Romans hate him. 
the Jews hate him. The Jews try to stone him. The Jews commit, accuse him of blasphemy. The Romans are bothered. Every time he goes into a city, he turns the place upside down. He's causing riots. He's thrown in and out of prison. Why are you listening to the lawbreaker? And so Paul reminds them, I'm not in prison because I'm a troublemaker. I'm not in prison because I'm a wild vigilante with no respect for the law. I am in prison because of Christ. He reminds them that I go to prison because I preach the gospel of Jesus. If the pastoral search committee then qualified it, every time he's gone to jail, it's because of open-air preaching, then suddenly you wouldn't feel so bad about it. In other words, Paul's imprisonments are actually a mark of virtue, not of vice. There's a, an ancient letter written by a Christian martyr, Irenaeus, who was martyred and he wrote all these letters to all these churches before he died. And he was so proud that he was arrested and persecuted for the right reasons, for gospel reasons, that in his letter he very poetically says, he describes the shackles around his wrists and the shackle around his neck. He says, when the world looks at these, they see chains. When I look at these, I see pearls. This is the, this is the jewelry that Christ the Lord has given me. Paul is reminding them that his imprisonments are not a good reason to not listen to him. They're actually a good reason to listen to him. How many people do you know are going to prison for Christ? But he doesn't just say that he's a prisoner for Christ. He also tells them he's a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. Now, why would he say that? Is he trying to guilt them? He's trying to manipulate their emotions and make them feel bad. Well, no, it's not their fault. He's, he's later in the chapter even going to go on and say, I don't want you to feel bad about my circumstances. He's going to say that very explicitly. He's not trying to make them feel guilty. Again, he's trying to bolster his credibility. He's trying to strengthen his authority. In other words, if you're really this confused of who you should listen to, the Apostle Paul or these other Jewish leaders who have come in and changed his message, which one of these leaders are willing to die for you. Paul's essentially saying, I, I could have stayed home. My life would have been really easy. I had it really good as a Pharisee. I had it really good. I could have stayed home. I'm in prison because I was willing to leave my home and plant a church in Ephesus and preach the gospel to you for three years. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in prison because I decided to try to save you. Now who do you want to listen to? Who really loves the Ephesians? The leaders who come in with their arrogance, we've known the truth for hundreds of years. Listen to us. And then they leave? Or the man who lived there for three years, prayed over them, cried with them, sweated with them, and then went to prison for them. Paul is leveraging his imprisonment. I'm a prisoner because I'm a gospel preacher and I'm a prisoner because I'm here to serve you and the world doesn't like it. And you see how much weight his authority now has with these people. He's right. I want the guy that's willing to die for me. I'll listen to that guy. It's really, really quite an important message. And I think it reminds us of something. It reminds us of how powerful the transformation of the Spirit really is. The fact that Paul's doing all this for the Gentiles, we shouldn't let that go by so quickly. This is pretty amazing. Paul hints at this in verse 7. Read with me again how he ends it in verse 7. He talks about as he goes on to remind them of this, this calling he had to the Gentiles. He said, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. 
You know what I found interesting about that? Uh, in my mind, it doesn't take power to make someone an apostle. It takes authority to make someone an apostle. Right? An apostle is an authoritative office, so the only way a person can have that office is if someone with a greater authority bestows it upon them. Right? It doesn't take, for example, it doesn't take power for, you know, a CEO to elect, uh, you know, a, a secretary. It just takes authority. He doesn't have to be physically strong. He just has to have the authority. But Paul says that I became an apostle not just because of the authority of God, but because of the power of God. It, it's a reminder that it takes more to be an apostle than just having Christ tell you an apostle. Paul had to be equipped to do this job well. Not very many people have what it takes to go into foreign countries and be arrested multiple times, be beaten multiple times, be whipped multiple times, be nearly stoned to death on one occasion, be shipwrecked on one occasion, and still wake up in the morning excited to please God and ready to save the world. But not just Paul's amazing gifts, his resiliency, his toughness, not, not were just those things the working of God's power, but even more fundamentally, Paul was a Pharisee. He hated Gentiles. Paul used to hate these people. And now he's been called to risk his neck for these people. That doesn't happen through pure authority. That happens through life-changing power. That happens when a man whose heart is hardened and stony and dark and black... And the power of God transforms him, makes him born again into a new creature. The fact that Paul is in prison on behalf of the people he was bred and taught to hate is an incredible evidence of the power of the gospel. Paul used to want to persecute these people himself, and he's now being persecuted on their behalf. What changed? And Paul's answer is simple. The grace of God delivered to me by the Spirit through the gospel. But nonetheless, what, what Paul is specifically interrupted with, the reason he has to change positions here, is he's not actually sure if the Gentiles understand. I don't know if these guys actually do know, he says in verse 2, of what my duty is, what my job is, what my special commission is. Have they actually heard about my apostolic ministry? Now, that might sound kind of confusing because Paul pastored this church for three years, but I just want to encourage you for two different reasons why this is not so bizarre. Um, first and foremost, you'd be amazed at how little you're able to actually teach in three years. Uh, I know a pastor who preached 14 years through the Gospel of Mark. Three years is actually not a lot of time for Bible teaching, especially Paul who was a bivocational minister. He had a job. So it's not unheard of to think of maybe there were some even pretty fundamental things that perhaps he never got to during his three-year pastorship over Ephesians. And on top of that, since Paul left, the first century church was growing and changing rapidly. So it's very plausible that a lot of new Christians, there are probably a lot of faces in this church. Paul has, he has no idea who they are or what they know and how well this church has taught in his absence. So it's, it shouldn't be, even though Paul did minister in Ephesians for three years, it shouldn't be that confusing that he's now from prison wondering, do they even know who I am? Like, do, do they really understand what my job description is? And so the rest of our passage today is Paul essentially reminding them of his job description and reminding them of his 
duty. And so we could break really the rest of our passage down into two blocks. There's summary information, which he basically just reiterates much of what he said in chapter 2. But then there is some new information. And so let's just work through the summary information fairly quickly since we've been hammering it so hard all the way through Ephesians chapter 2. Most of what he says, he tells us in verse 3, which is primarily summary. Read with me in verse 3. He asks if they even know of the grace that was given to him in verse 2. And he says in verse 3, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So here's him telling us summary information is coming. I, I already briefly wrote about this. And now I'm wondering if you even know that it was my job to be the one to tell you this. And so he continues in verse 4 explaining, essentially summarizing all of chapter 2 or the second half. He says in verse 4, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 6 is basically a summary of everything we've been covering for three weeks at the latter half of Ephesians chapter 2. We've been talking about that. In other words, what is this amazing mystery that Paul was commissioned to tell the Gentiles? And it is found in verse 6 that they are fellow heirs. That they are not second class citizens in the kingdom of God. They are not afterthoughts in the kingdom of God. That yeah, it's not like the way the Jews were telling them, you guys can still be saved but we're still the special people. We're still the chosen people. We're still the apple of God's eyes. You guys are just kind of tagalongs. And the mystery of the gospel that Paul was commissioned to tell the Gentiles is that this is not the case. You are an equal member of God's family. You have an equal part to play in God's salvation economy. You have the same sin as the Jews. You were forgiven by the same Messiah. You were empowered by the same Spirit. You were predestined by the same Father. The whole of Ephesians so far up to this point has been summarized in verse 6. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs. The Old Testament promises belong to Gentiles. The Old Testament Messiah belongs to Gentiles. The Old Testament salvation belongs to Gentiles. Verse 6 really is a great summary of everything we've been covering. And so what I want us to do is really focus on the new material. As Paul summarizes his authority, summarizes his message, he does tell us something interesting that we have not yet heard about this great gospel of Gentile inclusion. And the new material can be found in verses 4 and 5. Let's read those together again. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In verses 4 and 5, the mystery, which we already know, has been summarized. Paul tells us that it's new. That, in other words, the gospel that Paul preached to his audience and to us by extension is actually contains new information that no one ever knew before. Paul is telling them, I'm not here just to reiterate the Old Testament teaching. I'm here to actually give you something that can't be found in the Old Testament. 
God has revealed something new to the apostles. He's revealed something new to today's prophets. And I have come to reveal this new thing which was not made known to the sons and other generations. Paul is teaching us that this plan of Gentile inclusion, of the Gentiles being equal with Israel in salvation, this is new teaching. Not new to us, but it was new to them. However, I, I do want us to clarify in what sense it's new. We know that in a certain sense it's not entirely new. It's certainly not contradictory to the Old Testament, and it's definitely not entirely new. And why do we know that? Because Paul, look again at verse 7. Paul describes this new message that was not made known to the sons of other men. What, how does he describe it at the beginning of verse 7? Of this gospel. In other words, Paul is revealing the fullness of the gospel, but we know that the gospel as a whole is not new. In a, in, a, in a certain sense, the gospel is very much in the Old Testament. Now, we could spend hours going through every book of the Bible to prove that. So let me just try to give you one really definitive proof. Keep your marker here, but turn to uh, the book of Galatians. Right, just over one book, right before Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians. Gal Galatians chapter 3. Read with me verses 6 through 9 of Galatians chapter 3. This is the same Paul, by the way. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice that Paul tells us very explicitly in this verse that when Abraham received the Abrahamic covenant, and what was it? Paul reminds us, it, the Abrahamic covenant was God's promise to Abraham that in you all the nations shall be blessed. That it is through the seed of Abraham that the whole world would be blessed. And how does Paul, what does Paul call that message? The gospel. The scriptures, verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel is not new to the New Testament. The gospel was in the Old Testament. It is not new. And this helps us, by the way, to make sense of many Old Testament passages, which very explicitly teach what Paul is talking about here, that Gentiles would one day be saved right alongside the Jews. For example, we read from Psalm 138 today for both our call to worship and in our prayer to the nations. And what did we affirm in our call to worship and our prayer for our nations? We affirmed this, that all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Right? That's not just a prophecy for Israel. That's all the kings, all the nations are going to be singing the praises of God one day. And we also read from Acts chapter 15 which is an amazing passage because in Acts chapter 15, the apostles are debating the Jewish leaders about whether the Gentiles can be saved as Gentiles or if they have to become Jews first. 
And Peter answers, no, they can be saved as Gentiles. And guess how Peter proves it? By appealing to the Old Testament. And Peter goes on to quote from Amos chapter 9, which we read during our prayer for the nations, quote, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So certainly the Old Testament preached the gospel. And the Old Testament even preached the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles. So let's bring it back now. So in what sense is Paul's message new? In what sense, as Paul says, was this not made known to the sons of men in other generations? And what Paul did was he brought a greater clarity to the gospel. He added new specifics that were never made known. In other words, the gospel of the Old Testament was true and accurate, but it was very, very vague. It was very general. I mean, for example, the gospel as it was, what was Abraham's gospel? That through one of your descendants, the whole nations will be blessed. Okay, but what does that mean? Blessed how? Through my descendants. How through my descendants? Like, are they just going to populate the earth? Is it going to be one? There's so much there left unspoken. But notice that that message is not inconsistent with what we know about the gospel. It's a true message. Jesus Christ is a descendant of Abraham, and he's going to save the world. The Abrahamic gospel is the gospel, and it's true that through the descendants of Abraham, the whole nations will be blessed. But they didn't have the specifics of that. The Old Testament really didn't have these very crucial gospel specifics. They just knew that Israel is God's chosen people, and we're going to have a Messiah come who's going to restore the glory of Israel, and that the Gentiles are going to eventually worship Yahweh too. That was their gospel. But was the Messiah the Messiah for the Gentiles? No, they thought he's, he's just the Messiah for the Jews. Were the Gentiles going to be part of Israel? No, of course not. They, they can worship Yahweh alongside of us, but they're not going to be Israel. I mean, the Messiah is coming for Israel. He's coming for the people of God, and they're just going to sort of get caught up in the overflow, the excess of blessing. And so what Paul brought new was this incredible clarity. It, it, what, the idea of Gentiles being saved is not what's new. It, even in the Old Testament, Gentiles were allowed to come under the law of Moses, be circumcised, and worship with the Jews. The temple system even had the outer courts where the Gentiles worshipped. So it wasn't new to the Gentiles, or forgive me, it wasn't new to the Jews that God can save Gentiles. What's new to the Jews is that not just that God is saving Gentiles, but that they get to worship in the inner courts with you. That they, they don't actually belong in the outer courts. What was new to the Gentiles is that they were saved in the same way through the same Messiah for the same reasons. You see, when Jesus showed up, how did John the Baptist announce him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jews. No. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus was what was new about Paul's message. The book of Hebrews tells us that the gospel is in the Old Covenant. Jesus is in the Old Covenant. But it's, the book, Hebrews chapter 10 says it's in there in types and shadows. Right? If you were to see my shadow, you could know something of me. Right? You would know that I'm not an incredibly skinny person. Though maybe one day. I don't run triathlons on my birthday like Gabriel does. So maybe that's part of the problem. Like, you, you, could know, you could know some things about me by looking at my shadow. 
but you know a lot more about me when you look at me. And that's, that's the analogy the Bible uses. The gospel is in the Old Testament. The shadow of the gospel is in the Old Testament. The shadow of Jesus is in the New Testament. And it was Paul's job to take the shadow and actually give them the real thing. So he didn't contradict the message of the old. Your shadow doesn't contradict your reality. It's, a, it's an accurate reflection. He didn't contradict. But Paul's point is very clearly this. You cannot live without this message I'm bringing you. You need this. It's a necessary part. And it's something you've never heard before. And it's that Jews and Gentiles are equal in Christ. That we are all the people of God. And most importantly, that we always have been. The Gentiles, because of predestination, have always been part of the people of God, but that was not made known in the Old Testament. It was just a general salvation of the Gentiles, but we are now knowing that Christ came to show no partiality, to bring salvation, yes, first to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles, because His people span across the entire nation, every tribe, tongue, people. So there was a very real sense in which what Paul said was not new, but an even more real sense in what she said was absolutely new. This was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So what did we learn? Paul summarized Ephesians chapter 2 for us. But what we learned is that what we've been learning in Ephesians chapter 2 was brand spanking new revelation from the apostles. This was not just reiterated old stuff. This was brand new revelation that Paul taught. He, he showed them how you can find things in the Old Testament that before us you would have never found. Right? He did that in Galatians 3. Paul quoted in Galatians 3 from the Abrahamic covenant. And when Abraham was given the promise that through your sentence you shall bless the nations, Paul now gave them a divine interpretation of that. What does that mean? It means that just like the Jews, the Gentiles will be justified in Christ by faith. Now all those words were not in the book of Genesis. Those are Paul's words. But he's giving us further clarified interpretation of the shadowy, generic Old Testament gospel. Now this leads us, I want us to end with some application. This leads us to a really important application, if you will, of how this newness of the apostolic gospel can affect your everyday life. I mean, obviously the most important application is to just rejoice God loves you just like he loves the Jews. <laughs> the most important application is to come to Christ and be forgiven and be part of the people of God and be an equal member of the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the general application. But we've been really hammering that for two weeks. So I want to give you something a little less significant, but still really, really important. And here's an application for you. When we think about how the apostles gave us new revelation and how that new revelation clarified the old, here's what this means for your kind of just everyday walk with the Lord. You need to let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament for you. When you do your Bible studies, you need to let the New Testament be your interpretive guide throughout the Old Testament. You see, Paul is teaching us of the important role that the apostles play in God's economy. It's the job of the, of the apostles to be the infallible interpreters of the Old Testament. Since they were the ones who received the fullness of the gospel, the full clarity of the gospel, they were given insights into the Old Testament which are not explicitly or obviously there. In other words, there are things you will miss if you just read through the Old Testament by yourself. There are things in there that were not revealed to the sons 
of men in that generation. You need the apostles to take you by the hand and guide you, give you a tour through the Old Testament. That's their job. That was their commission to give us the fullness of the gospel and show us how it is compatible and how it comes from the foundation of the Old Testament. I think Jesus really hints at this very clearly. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 24. He's not saying exactly this, but I think what Jesus says is very compatible with the point that I'm trying to make. The Gospel of Luke chapter 24. This is after Jesus' resurrection. The disciples do not know that Jesus is resurrected yet. And the disciples are on this road that leads to Emmaus. And Jesus approaches them, but he miraculously blinds their eyes so they don't recognize that they're talking to Jesus. They just think they're talking to some guy. And they still think that Jesus is not alive yet. And so look with me beginning at verse 25. After Jesus asked what's wrong, and they say, are you the only guy in Israel who hasn't heard about what happened three days ago? Like, come on, get with the program here. And then Jesus says this in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isn't this amazing? The Old Testament teaches you about Jesus. The Old Testament teaches you that it was necessary that Jesus would come and die. But you want to know whose name is never in the Old Testament? Jesus. There's no Old Testament verse that says, by the way, a man whose name will be Jesus will be born to a woman named Mary, and he's going to live for 30 years, and then he's going to be crucified on a Roman cross. But don't worry, because three days later, he's going to rise again. And that's good news, because that means your sins are forgiven. You're not going to find that verse in the Old Testament. But Jesus tells you, it's, it's hidden, but it's there. I'm in there. I'm, uh, the Old Testament, that's all about me. And the apostles, or forgive me, at this moment, the disciples should have known this. Why? Because they had been walking with the guy for three years. But it wasn't until this moment that he miraculously, very explicitly walked them through. This is, I like to call this the greatest Bible study that's ever been done in the history of the world. Jesus sits with the disciples and they go through the Old Testament and says, and they, oh, I see, that's about Jesus. Oh, I see, that's the gospel. But they didn't know this until a New Testament interpreter explained it to them. You see, we need the New Testament revelation of Christ to fully understand the Old. You can understand the Old before the New Testament. There were things in it people understood. But the fullness of God's revelation comes through Christ. And we have access to Christ through the apostles. And we have access to the apostles through the New Testament. It's so facto, if you want to understand the Old Testament, let the New Testament guide you through it. He doesn't end there. Stay in the same chapter. Look at verse 44. He now is appearing to the same disciples, but as a larger group. He only appeared to a few of them on the road. He's now appearing to the larger group. And this is what he says in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You were witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice how Jesus believes every portion of our Bible, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are about him, his death, his resurrection, his gospel, and they're even a proclamation that all the nations would one day be saved by this same gospel. He says, that's all in the Old Testament. You just needed me to show you. Right? So what is Jesus really affirming for us? He is affirming to us the necessity of using the fullness of revelation given through Christ and the apostles to understand the Old Testament. Far too many theological mistakes are made when a person thinks they have the Old Testament figured out and then they reinterpret the New Testament in light of what they figured out in the Old Testament. But that's reversing the order. The reason the apostle Paul was given to us was so that we wouldn't have to go at the Old Testament by ourselves. We don't need to walk through the, the, the shadows and the types and the foreshadows and the pictures and the images. We don't need to walk through that stuff by ourselves. We have divine interpretation to help us. Now, obviously, not every single Old Testament verse is interpreted in the New. I'm not saying that there's no work for us to be done. I'm not saying there's no debate left to be had. But the general principle is that when you're reading through your Old Testament, you should be very concerned, does the New Testament shed light on this passage? And if so, I want to read it. You want to be very concerned of however I'm interpreting this Old Testament, is it consistent with the fullness of the revelation found in Christ Jesus? We want to allow the apostles to walk our hands through the Old Testament. We need to let the New Testament have what we call an interpretive priority. The New Testament gets to tell us what Moses meant. Peter gets to tell us what Isaiah meant. We don't have to interpret these things all by ourselves. The apostles revealed the fullness of the gospel. Christ revealed the Old Testament is actually about him. And so, let the Old Testament come alive for you today. Let the Old Testament serve you and teach you, knowing not just that it's inspired, but even more than that, we have an inspired understanding of it now. We have a greater understanding of the Old Testament than even the people who received it because of Christ, because of the apostles. And so I want to end with this. The New Testament does not mean we no longer need the Old Testament. The New Testament means we can now enjoy the Old Testament like never before. So don't neglect the Old Testament in your, in your personal lives, in your theological lives. It was given to us for our instruction, for our teaching, our edification. Fall in love with the Old Testament. Read and study the Old Testament. Embrace it like never before because Christ and the apostles have come and they have told us what those things mean. We don't discard the Old Testament. We enjoy it like never before. 